Hi, Val here, and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. I live in one of Africa's most remote wilderness areas. Nature and wildlife is my biggest passion. I hand-dressed Serga the lioness and walked the Kalahari to join her on her hunts. My work is on tourism and nature conservation. For fun, but also for wildlife monitoring, I fly anything that gets me into the air. I live in an old caravan. The next supermarket is a two and a half hour drive away on sandy and bumpy roads. There is no cell reception anywhere nearby and the only comms is an extremely slow, extremely expensive satellite internet connection. I am Valentin Grüner and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. Hi everybody and welcome back to The Kalahari Diaries. This is episode number nine of my podcast and this time I would like to talk about what it really means to actually manage a small wildlife area. Basically, from the sort of background, why are certain things necessary? How do we manage our populations of different kinds of animals, the water supply? Why are there fences? All of these things. But also just what is the actual day-to-day sort of running of of this place? What is the hands-on work that actually has to be done? And... At the moment, it's about 40 degrees in the shade and I'm sitting in a converted shipping container. And although we are underneath a shade roof here, it is brutally hot. So I hope you don't mind the background noise, which is a little fan standing on my desk blowing um, a little bit of also hot air onto me, but it's still pretty pleasant. I think to start this off with, if I just think back to my childhood, I've always had this idea that wildlife should just be completely left alone. Best is if we just don't touch it, we don't interfere, we stay away from it. And that's nature and it, it's supposed to be like that. And it's been a bit of a journey for me now working in wildlife conservation and in nature and the natural areas and actually one of the most remote natural areas that we have left on this earth. And Sadly, and I've been talking about it in previous podcasts, how the wildebeest migration has died because of actually the greed for beef and the need for beef in the European Union and deals that we make worldwide. And although we have massive habitats left in the Kalahari that are designated wildlife areas, it simply does not mean that those areas function as they should do because we've cut off the access to water for most of our animals here in the desert And wherever we find water in the desert, people settle down with livestock. So although there's plenty habitat, a very, very important life-giving feature has been taken away. So us coming here, there are certain things that we have to do to actually help wildlife. And one thing that I've realized throughout my, whatever you want to call it, career so far, is that we can't just stay away. We are a major part of nature. And if anything, humanity can be seen as as the most destructive part that there is for our habitat and other species on this planet. And I simply believe that we have to choose how we want to impact with our life. And by just staying away and not doing anything, we are actually the ones destroying our earth and we can choose to do the opposite or at least try our best. And yeah, I think I'm just going to explain how I'm trying to do my best and what I actually have to do every day. So let's get started. Okay, so the first thing that's very important to understand is a term called carrying capacity. And it's actually not that complicated. If we take a certain habitat, one area, it's got a certain size and it's got a certain location and it's got a certain climate. Let's take the area that we're in here. We have seven and a half thousand hectares, which is about 10 by seven and a half kilometers or 75 square kilometers. 
that I am personally responsible for at the moment. Now, that area is located in the southern or southwestern part of Botswana in the Kalahari. It's a very, very arid area, a semi-desert. We have very little rainfall, but we do have vegetation cover, a fairly good cover here in the area. So that means that we grow food for wildlife. It's very little. We have very little rain and we have very, very little access to water. Now, given all of this space, the 75 square kilometers, with the rain that falls on it on average every year, on average, it grows a certain amount of vegetation, a certain amount of bushes, trees, leaves, and so on, will sprout, will come out. And that means there's a certain amount of vegetation that can be utilized and that should be utilized by animals or some form of utilization. Because if we simply leave it alone, it's going to continue growing. We will end up with a lot of dead biomass lying around, dead brown, burnt grass, like not burnt, but burnt from the sun, dry, dry grass, dry leaves. And I guess anybody can imagine what kind of a fire hazard that would be. And eventually, if it becomes too much, it would create huge, very, very hot fires if lightning would ever hit in that area and we get major thunderstorms. So actually having the wildlife or other animals in that area utilizing the vegetation sustainably is a very, very good thing because it limits the risk of fires and a hot fire like that that burns through would be very, very destructive to much of the vegetation. Trees that may be hundreds of years old would be dead and so on. So sustainable ecosystems are very fragile and it's very important that they manage the right way. And that means there's a certain amount of wildlife that should be utilizing our 75 square kilometers. Now, lucky for me, over the past decades, many smart people have been studying all of this and they have put together exactly how many animals can fit into this area, how much can it actually carry. Now, that being said, there are actually many ways of managing this. We could go and say, oh, we grow a lot of nice grass, let's take a tractor, we mow the grass, then we bale the grass, and then we take all the grass to town and we sell those bales, and maybe we're going to earn some money. We could say, okay, hang on, it rains for a certain amount of time of the year, let's try and plow a lot of our area and we can plant corn and we can do all kinds of things. And most people would probably find out that it doesn't rain enough in our area unless you want to wait for sort of once in a decade where we have a decent rainy season, decent enough to grow things like that. Or we could say, maybe we are able to put water into our area somehow, and now we could farm goats, sheep, cattle, we could farm pigs, we could do all kinds of stuff. We could start removing a lot of trees and selling them for firewood, and so on. But in this case, we focus on managing this as a wildlife area, and we focus on managing it as a proper wildlife area where we only accommodate species that naturally occur in this habitat as a proper, just normal, natural piece of Kalahari. Now, that natural piece of Kalahari includes that we obviously work with the native animal species and with the native plant species. Much of our planet today is actually occupied by plants that should naturally not even occur in those ecosystems. And here we are sitting with this treasure of a little piece of nature, which has never really been altered by humans. It has never been farmed with livestock because previously, to us being here, there was never water put into this area, so people couldn't access this with, say, for example, cows or sheep or goats. And the aim of the whole thing that we're doing here is to keep the 75 square kilometers in its natural form with the animals that naturally belong there. Now, the thing is that we don't have the vast, enormous areas that are the size of countries in Europe 
that we still have in the Kalahari. Although that space for wildlife is there, I think I mentioned in previous podcasts how much of that has been diminished. And us sitting here now with this, what is actually huge, but still 75 square kilometers is minute compared to the actual wildlife areas that used to be available for our animals here. And inside our 75 square kilometers, animals aren't able to migrate a thousand kilometers to the Okavango Delta. They aren't able to migrate south to the Orange River system. They're simply just stuck in this 75 square kilometers and we really have to look after them. Now, what we have done here is we have put a pipeline in, which is about 120 kilometers long from the nearest point where sweet water can actually be accessed underground. And that pipeline leads all the way 120 kilometers to our area. Now, we also have to have a fence around this area because next to us there is community grazing lands where the people here of Africa, of Botswana, are farming goats and sheep and things like that. And they wouldn't want our animals to walk into that area and eat the grass and the vegetation that's growing there because that wouldn't fit. And all of these things are so important. I mean, they're obvious. We can't just have everything mixed. We have this area and we decide to keep that a wildlife area. So as much as the fence stops the animals that are here by us from going anywhere else. It also stops the goats and sheep from coming and utilizing our area. So it's a divider that divides the wildlife area that we have from the livestock area on the other side. And lucky for us, to the north, we are actually bordering one of Africa's largest conservation areas or wildlife areas. In our case, it's a wildlife management area connecting to the Kalahari Transfrontier Park and from there, it's actually sort of connected up through wildlife management areas to the Central Kalahari Game Reserve. So we are bordering this massive area, which is absolutely fantastic. However, the management of our 75 square kilometers is quite intense because it is not exactly like the big ecosystem would be. Say, for example, in one of the big parks in Botswana, a fire breaks out. People don't care if a few hundred square kilometers simply burn down. Our 75 square kilometers can't just burn down because then we wouldn't have any food. So if we have a fire, which isn't necessarily always a bad thing, we still have to make sure that only a very small portion of our area could possibly burn because we can't afford to lose the whole thing. Because even if our animals survive the fire, where do we put them afterwards and what do they eat? Because there wouldn't be any vegetation. So that, for example, could be a big issue. Naturally, the animals would simply walk somewhere else. The fire burns over there. It can burn for 100 kilometers. There's a few hundred kilometers somewhere else where they can be and eat. For us, that's not possible. So that's a big concern, something that we always have to look out for. Then, of course, like I mentioned, we have to have our fence so there's no migration, even if there was the possibility for a migration. In previous podcasts, I had talked about how the animals cannot access water anymore, which was half the point for the migration. And that's why we're pumping water into our area. Now we have to maintain that 120 kilometer pipeline and we have to maintain the four watering points that we have within our area. So we have to bring in water, we have to maintain our fences and we have to watch out that we don't have big fires. Now, with all of this given, we have a certain carrying capacity and that's what we spoke about earlier. And that carrying capacity is how we can utilize this area sustainably. To make this a little bit more clear, this carrying capacity usually means, if we're looking at the scientific numbers, that we have something called animal units or large stock units. Now, those units are for something like, for example, in our case, we calculate with about six large animal units per 100 hectares. That number simply means 
that's a certain amount of, if you want to call it meat, that can be walking around here and grazing. But if we're looking at a small antelope like a steenbok or a springbok, a steenbok is just a little bit bigger than a rabbit. A steenbok is just a bit smaller than a goat. And then we have a massive antelope like an eland, which can weigh almost a ton. Obviously, those animals don't eat the same amount. The small one eats much less than the big one and so on. That's why scientifically the whole thing simply gets put out. This is the animal units they can fit in. And then we will see that a springbok is only 0.2 animal units, for example. And an eland is maybe two and a half animal units. And I'm just making up numbers right now to give you guys an idea. I'd also have to go and read the book to actually be sure about what they really are. But so each species has its assigned portion of the units that we can then allocate. And that is how we can see what can actually fit in here after we've counted the area. And that's where the management starts. All right. So now let's say, for example, we've just done a game count over this area, which means we've been flying transects over the whole thing. We've been counting all the wildlife. We've been GPSing all the sightings. And we create a big map where we can see where they all were. And we get an idea of how many of them are around. Even though it's never perfect, it gives a pretty rough um, figure, but accurate enough to actually see, okay, this is what's going on. At the same time, one would look at the vegetation a little bit on the ground, just walking around, driving around, but also from the air while you're flying to see how much grass do we have here. The cover in general, how much of the area is covered with vegetation, just to see a little bit of the condition. And Overall, there can only be three outcomes. Either we don't have enough animals that are in this area, which means, great, they can reproduce and they can grow and become more, and we just wait for that to happen. It could also be worse. We actually have some species missing completely. Maybe they disappeared, and we need to find out, can we bring them back? Is there anywhere where we could bring them back from to reintroduce them here so that they can live? The other option would be that we're just at what the capacity should be. Maybe we are perfect. The numbers just fit and we can sit back and say, this is fantastic. Let's wait for maybe in six to eight months' time, we'll do another count. We'll see if the animals spread out a lot, if there's lots of youngsters, how did the numbers change? And then we get an idea of what's actually going on. Is our population growing? Is our population decreasing? And so on. And then there's another factor which is possible, and that is we have too many animals in this area, and that is actually, to an extent, the most concerning one, because now we know we have too much wildlife here. What do we do? We need to take the numbers out because we know our carrying capacity is not big enough, which means if those animals stay, we will have something that's called overutilization. We would be overgrazing or overbrowsing, which would be the browsing is the leaf-eating animals that eat from the trees. And we would simply start destroying the vegetation. We would destroy the actual habitat that we have here and that we need to look after. And without the habitat, we could have as many wild animals available as we want, but they simply couldn't live here unless we want to create a zoo and put them in boxes and, and feed them there with food that we buy and that has to be farmed somewhere and put on a truck and brought here. And obviously, I guess you guys understand that the whole idea of sustainability is to just have this area here work as natural as possible and as close as possible to what naturally used to be the case before humans had such a negative impact on so many of our ecosystems. Now, to explain this effect of overutilization a little bit more, we would simply have animals eating all our good grasses as soon as they start growing because those would be the most nutritious, simply the best food available, and all the animals are loving to eat that. Now, 
that gets eaten before it ever makes any seeds. It basically means those grasses will simply disappear before they ever get to breed. If the grasses cannot reproduce by creating seeds that then get dispersed again, that species of grass simply will disappear. Some grasses grow every year and then they're completely dead, so they will have to regrow from its own seed. Other grasses called perennials, they grow over several years, some of them seven to ten years old, so they will come back from its own tuft, but eventually they won't. So if for, say, seven years we are constantly overgrazing that area, those grasses will keep on trying to grow all the time, but eventually they will simply cease to exist because they've never produced seeds over those last years that we had too many animals always eating them. So it is very important to manage that. It is also very important to look carefully at certain areas. For example, we can use water in a very fantastic way to move our animals around a little bit. If we can see one area gets a little bit grazed too heavily, maybe the animals are too resident in this very spot and they're now always eating the grasses because obviously the water is there, they can go drink and then they will walk a little bit and eat the first best food that's available. We can switch that one water point off for a whole season and give all the grasses recovery time because that means if there's no water point available anymore, a lot of the wildlife will still maybe move through, have a nibble or a bite here, but the density of utilization would be much, much less. And we could then have them focus on another point, which maybe previously was switched off. And that's why we have four watering points in our area so that we can imitate this migration pattern that used to be natural to the Kalahari ecosystem where massive herds of animals would move through at certain times of the year and then completely give the area time to recover. So by trying to do it like that, we can do it as close to that past reality as possible. Now, another big factor in this whole management system is fires. Fires are something natural in the Kalahari. And if you imagine these ecosystems, you have to think about this dry, arid landscapes with a couple of dunes, big acacia trees, like that typical thing that's on a postcard from Africa. And then these grass-covered dune landscapes and these open grass savannas that we probably all know from documentaries on television and, and things like that about Africa. If we never have a fire come through these areas, what happens is that a lot of small shrubs and little trees and bushes start growing all over the place. And many of these bushes would take years, even 10 years to get to just a couple of meters height, and they stay relatively small. Now, if every five to seven or maybe eight years a fire comes through this area, a lot of these bushes will get killed from that, the small ones. Most big trees completely survive these fires, especially if the fires are the way they're supposed to be, which is not too hot. Ironically, we can actually speak about a hot and a cold fire in this case here, and a hot fire would be one that moves against the wind. The reason the fire is then very, very hot is because in order to fight its way against the wind, it just to be able to do that, it needs a lot of fuel load. There would be a lot of dry vegetation lying around to make that possible. And at the same time, the wind's actually trying to stop the fire from moving, which means the fire has to spend a lot more time in one place to create that heat to move forward. And that means the ground gets, gets very, very hot and it can destroy all the seed bank that is left in the ground and many, many very good plants or even big trees. Whereas what we would consider a cold fire, and that's the preferred one, it would be a fire that simply moves with the wind and through relatively light vegetation, not too dense of a, of a cover of dead 
grasses or something like that because then the heat intensity is much less and because it's blown with the wind it moves relatively quick and big trees are fairly protected from these fires not only because they are massive and it takes a while to even light them on fire and their bark often doesn't burn well at all there are actually major factors where the wildlife plays a big role because a big tree in the Kalahari is something that everything uses for shade. If it's a nice tree, somebody will be using that thing for shade during the daytime because it gets brutally hot, just like it is right now while I'm sitting here. And if you're not in the shade, most people or even animals could not survive just sitting out in the sun. And as the sun moves across the sky, the shadow moves from the one side directly underneath and then to the other side of the tree and the animals will simply move along with that, which creates these sort of circles of completely trampled grass and vegetation. It's just sand around a lot of these trees, and that will never burn directly on the tree, even if there is a fire coming through. So in a way, those wild animals utilizing the shade of the tree are actually giving back to the tree by removing a lot of this vegetation right around him, and that way the tree has a chance to not get burned when a bushfire happens next time. These fires, when they happen, take out a lot of the small shrubs and bushes, which diminishes their ability to become a big tree or bigger bushes, and it gives the grass the opportunity to grow. Now, the grasses don't take years to grow. They grow every season, even a few times if it rains enough, and that way they will create these open landscapes. Now, if there's never a fire, those open landscapes would all of a sudden become very bushy. Bush encroachment is the term for this which also happens if the area gets overutilized. Bush encroachment can happen, but simply having no fires can also increase a lot of the bush. And it can therefore decrease the amount of grass that can grow in the area. And thereby, it can actually decrease the carrying capacity. So the amount of animals that can live here, because most of them utilize grass. That being said, overall, Bottom line, a fire is not necessarily a bad thing. If it's too hot, if it's, it's a bad one. And in our case, if it's too big, if the whole area burns down, we have absolutely no food left here for our animals. And that really would be a big problem. So in our case, what we need to try to do is to say, first of all, this ecosystem, research is still being done on this and it's not entirely clear what is a proper frequency to burn here. And I believe it's very, very little. I would say maybe once in 10 years or something like that, a cold fire coming through, taking out some of the small shrub may be a healthy thing for our ecosystem, maybe even less frequent. And that means in our area, if we want to accommodate that to be possible at all, we would need to somehow split it in 10 pieces that are somehow divided by areas where we could stop a burn. It's called fire breaks, which is basically just a road that's clear of grass where we could use that to stop a fire if we ever had one. And if we would just burn one-tenth every year, we would burn basically the area every 10 years and could try and keep it in check like that. So it's something that's not a big thing if you think about it like that, oh, something burning every 10 years, but we can't afford to burn the whole thing every 10 years, so we would still have to burn a little bit every year. And that can be quite a lot of work and obviously quite a lot of excitement and risk because if the fires jump over those little breaks into the next areas, we might have a big problem and so on. So it has to be done properly, but it can also be something that's very necessary. In this sensitive ecosystem where it's so arid where we are at the moment, it's very important to monitor this carefully and not do it the wrong way either. So all these things 
I actually not researched that well. They have been researched in many popular farming areas in Southern Africa very well, but there's a reason that this is here, the Kalahari, the dry parts, is not a popular farming area because it's very, very different. And for us, it's very important to look at this carefully. And we are lucky enough to actually be working together with a few scientists who have been doing this for a long time and who are trying to figure out exactly that kind of thing for these areas. And hopefully part of our area and the burns that we will be doing here, controlled burns is what they would be called, those will be then scientifically analyzed, measured vegetation before and after and the regrowth and so on. And that can then be used to determine was it a good thing or not. So we have quite a few major factors that are constantly creating work. One of them is our fences. They need to be put up. It's a law. It's also something, as we said, it keeps the livestock from other areas out of our area, which gives our wildlife this area to live in. Then we have the water, which has to be pumped from 120 kilometers away. Then we have this whole issue with the fires. And more than having to worry about controlled burns is actually the fact that we want to have these fire breaks because lightning in the Kalahari is a major part of the rainy season. And especially in the beginning, when it's not green yet, when it's just dry and the first big thunderstorms come, fires are very common here. And we need to be able to control them very quickly if they break out. So maintaining fire breaks, maintaining fences, making sure the water is working, that we always have water in the water holes, at least the ones that we want to provide water in. That's a big thing. And then on top of that, we have to count the wildlife and we have to look at how much do we have? How does our figures work out? Is our carrying capacity on the dot? Are we underutilizing the area? Is the area being overutilized? And not only do we count the animals, we also try to look at the vegetation, do surveys of the vegetation where we can then say, okay, our grasses are actually becoming better. We are increasing the, the quality of this ecosystem. And that's a good thing. Oh, we could see, oh, hang on. The quality is decreasing. We are actually losing capacity of the area, which means we have to drastically decrease the amount of animals that's eating from this area. By now, I hope that everybody understood that management of this area is necessary. And that is what we would call wildlife management. There are people who work in national parks, whole departments that are responsible for those kind of things. And often, especially the smaller an area gets, we get to a stage where we say, if it's utilize too much. We have too many animals here. We have to do something about it. And in our case, we would never kill a predator. We have lions, leopards, cheetahs, and so on coming through, but sadly, they don't all stay here. Our area is plenty big enough to accommodate quite a lot of hoofed animals. We probably have quite a few leopards that are relatively territorial within our area. Cheetahs seem to be relatively resident, which is fantastic. Lions in the Kalahari, for example, use huge territories. There's a very big cat and they can move far. So they come and go, but unfortunately, they're not always here. Also, we are in one of these conflict zones where people and these predators clash. So often when these animals come here, those predators are roaming around. They make it into the area. And by the way, if anybody's wondering, they go in and out of these fences quite easily. They just go under and they're in, which is why Serga just to put that in as a side note, has her own 2,000 hectare, which is 20 square kilometers area. And that is hers. That is fenced much more securely so that predators cannot access the area, at least not very easily. It's got electric fencing and an additional mesh wire onto the normal kind of fence. So predators can go in and out. And all that being said, that's actually a good thing because we are bordering this massive wildlife area and 
our area is too small because we would maybe have one small pride of lions that would be needed to look after the bigger antelope that are in our area. We would need a few leopards and a few cheetahs and none of this would be a genetically healthy population to breed. Our herbivores are big in numbers here and we don't have to worry about their genetics or the gene pool. But to have the small amount of predators that would be needed permanently here to maintain that population at the right levels, we would need to maintain those predators on a very, very almost one-to-one basis by controlling their breeding, giving them hormone implants and so on. It would become a very, very costly thing. So we're very lucky that we have predators moving in and out freely but they are not taking off enough of animals. When we do our game counts, we usually end up with quite a high number that increases. And then we simply see, okay, now we have to bring that back to our carrying capacity, back to what the ecosystem can actually carry. And then we need to sit down and say, okay, we have to take out so many Chemsbok, so many Springbok, so many Eland, and that's the number for the year, which we would call our quota. For this year, that is what we will be taking off. With taking off, there are a few options. And I just quickly want to go through these options. They are actually relatively simple. One option and a preferred one in Africa is trophy hunting, which basically means the farm management, ranch management or park management, whatever you want to call it, whatever the area actually is, it would decide that this is the amount of animals that have to go. And then they would sell those animals. They would say there's so many Elands this year and so many wildebeest this year and so on are sold. People who enjoy killing animals can simply book. They pay a lot of money for the hunt. All they usually want is a little bit of meat and the horns and the skin and the trophy, which they then take home and hang next to their dining table on the wall or something like that. And it's obviously a pretty good deal for the people running this area because they're earning money on the animal being killed, although the meat now is still there. Then the meat can be sold to butchery possibly or simply used to feed the workers on the ranches and things like that. So it's a very lucrative way to run the whole thing. And that's just one option. Then there's another option, which is simply meat hunting. So that's saying, okay, we have too many animals here. And for example, the manager of the farm just goes out with the workers. They will hunt the animals off whatever they feel is right and what needs to be done. And then they try and sell that meat in town to butchery so that it can be utilized. And personally, just to give you a little bit of a, of a thought here, is that Botswana currently has about 3 million cattle and then another 3 million between the donkeys, sheep and, and goats and so on. So there's 6 million livestock animals that we are farming. And this is actually all for the meat industry. We have so little wildlife left. The numbers are not very certain, but it's definitely not in millions anymore. And nowhere near. Our wildebeest probably used to be millions and are now in the tens of thousands. And just this idea, if we would be utilizing this, not to say we go into the national parks that's already existing, but we would take these farmlands and turn all the cattle ranching into wildlife areas where the wildlife is utilized as a meat product. We would have so much more area that is full of wild animals and wild animals can coexist very well with predators. Predators actually play an important part in managing our wild animals and we'll quickly get back to that just in a moment. But for now it's just the utilization of this wildlife is not necessarily a bad idea although it may seem disgusting in the beginning but we have six million livestock animals in Africa that shouldn't even be here and to me 
I find it quite ironic if we think about the fact that there was probably the same amount of wild animals just 60, 70 years back. And we've put so much money in cattle, which now we have to drill boreholes into the ground all over the place, put fences everywhere. We put these things through the, through the enclosures every few months so that they can get vaccinated. We dehorn them so that they can be put on a truck where they don't injure each other. Such a huge effort, also economically speaking, that we're doing to replace the same value of much, much healthier meat that was walking around here completely free and unharmed before. And I just wonder why don't we get this idea back of saying, why can't we utilize that product? Because I don't think, how, how can we just cancel all the farms? Because they are a product that humans are using. So without either changing our population density or drastically changing our behavior, we are not going to turn these areas into anything different. So the meat hunting to me is an ethically sort of sound thing that, that can be done and that can be practiced. And another option is live sales of wild animals. And this is one that I used to love a lot. You think this idea is perfect. You can breed these wild animals. Our area does so well so that they become so many. And then they just get loaded alive onto some trucks and they get moved to a different reserve where they can now live. And... Quite honestly, I have to say, after quite a few years of being directly involved in this now and actually doing these captures and moving some of these animals and also in having to hunt quite a lot of these animals, I have to honestly tell you that going to hunt a wild animal is something that I still hate, but it's something I can be okay with because I know in their whole life, Remsburg, for example, lives being worried about being killed by something. It is, in a way, part of their life cycle to end up being food for a lion. And if a lion kills it, there's a hell of a torture involved. Now, if I do it ethically and right, that animal doesn't even know what's coming. There is a little bit of suffering involved in the death. There's no doubt about that. But it's very quick. The animal sort of dies naturally in its ecosystem, and it's done much, much faster and maybe more ethically for that specific individual than if a lion would be hanging on it and, and, and taking 20 minutes or even longer to even finish finish it off. With that in mind, thinking about relocating these animals alive, although it is a hell of an exciting practice, you flying helicopters over these areas, chasing these animals into massive funnel-type systems, which are set up with big canvases, can be kilometers long. And then these herds get chased in there with helicopters, herds of wild animals, and as the helicopter brings these animals closer, the people that are on the ground start pulling curtains closed. So this whole funnel system closes up. And at the mouth of the funnel, it's still very wide. And as it gets to the neck, it obviously gets more narrow and narrow and narrow. It ends up into a loading ramp and then it goes up into a truck. And the stress that these animals go through, because these are wild animals, these are wildebeest, zebras, Hemsburg, things that have never been touched by people. They might be used to a Land Rover driving around and tourists watching them and taking photographs, but not helicopters and people. You know, If you put a wild animal in a confined space like this, the stress that happens is enormous. Some of them die just from the stress factor or they get hurt by another one and, and, and things like that. And then they have to be on a truck and being moved. So in all honesty, to me, that is not a good way to manage an area. The area should be managed so that it sustains itself, that it, if there's meat that can be sold out of it, so be it, because that, that's, that's fine. And it's nothing unnatural that happens to the Schremsburg if it gets hunted in an ethical way. A lion would hunt him otherwise. 
that is just something that has to happen so that the habitat for the other Hemsburg actually remains intact. But the whole catching and so on, if it's for the right purpose, if we have an area, if say a few of our big cattle ranches who say, hey, we are turning this whole area, which is much, much bigger than our wildlife area here. For example, if they say we want to take our private area and we're going to now make this into a wildlife area, I would happily say, of course, we will simply not hunt for any meat for that year and we will take all our Hemsburg and Eland that are accessed after the end of the year count and we will capture them alive and we'll move them up to you because then you can, you know, they will start up repopulating an area previously not populated by wildlife anymore. And that's a sacrifice that I would, I would say is happily something we can make. Then at the end of this now, there's one other thing that people do to manage these wildlife areas. And that is a term that's called culling. Culling can simply mean they just shot so that they disappear because otherwise the area suffers. And the habitat is the baseline for everything to live on. Now, that means in many cases, animals are actually being killed just because too many and they're being left there. Now, that's good for some hyenas and some vultures, but if it's a lot, even the hyenas and vultures are not going to be able to keep up with this. Now, obviously, people and so on will utilize meat to whatever extent they can, but in big culling operations, sometimes that's impossible and it may be done just to reduce the population and for no other purpose. And to me, that is, out of all of these things, the factor that probably should be avoided the most because it should never get to that stage. So if there is an area, there has to be plans in place. What are we going to do if our animals are, are breeding out well and our predators are not taking out enough of them? Then how are we managing this? Where will we put them? And so on. Now, even within the area, the workers can live off this meat. We live off our own meat. We we'd only eat the, our own meat. We're basically sharing with sugar. And that is how how these things can be, yeah, can be utilized. So... This is to avoid the overpopulation of animals. Now, on the other hand, should our area not have enough animals here that's actually utilizing it, we would end up with the factor of underutilization, not enough grazing. And simply what that means, it would be a lot more dead organic biomass, a lot of grass lying around. But I got to be honest with you and actually say it's a very, very hard thing to do out here because... The amount of termites, for example, just in weight that is on this earth apparently is more than all of us humans combined in weight. So termites are an enormously successful species and very, very abundant and probably even in weight here in the Kalahari more than the herbivores that are walking around on top of the soil is all these little termites inside the soil. And if there is a lot of dead grass left over, we have so many harvested termites and all kinds of things that are still cutting up this grass and pulling it into the ground. So this ecosystem here to actually have it produce too much grass and have just dead grass standing there is relatively hard to achieve. And let's just assume that we actually had that happen. We had a few very good rainy seasons. Maybe there's really not enough animals in a certain area and the grass just grows. That means when the first thunderstorms come up after the dry season, when everything is bone dry and the lightning hits, that big hot fires are possible. And that is a huge problem. And once that biomass is laying here, there's not much at all that can be done about that. So although it's not a major factor, but underutilization of this ecosystem is possibly 
just as bad or even worse than heavy overutilization of this ecosystem. Our personal area here that we have actually had a fire come through, I think about nine years ago, and it came only through the top half of our area, which back then was just part of all the big open spaces here. It was allocated as a private area, but nothing had been done with it. It was just a big chunk next to the park. And that fire went through the park, through a big area, probably the size of, I don't know, maybe a hundred times our farm. But it came and it burned through a top bit of our area. And that top bit of the ranch, until now, nine years later, still only grows very poor quality grasses. It's still, in the dry season, ends up being a very, very bare sand patch. And it's still an issue for us. And we are trying to rehabilitate it with better grasses. We've got all kinds of projects going. But so that's just to give you an idea of how bad the impact can be of a hot fire that came through. Now, if this was the vast openness of the Kalahari, we wouldn't mind too much because maybe in 20 years time, this part would be the perfect ecosystem again. But our small area, we cannot afford having that happen to the whole thing. And that is why we need to focus on managing it properly. So this might be time now to get a little bit to my personal view of how this management should be done. And as I explained, there are many options, trophy hunting being the probably most lucrative one. Then there's the option for meat, the option for live sales, the option for culling. Now, personally for me, the only thing that I can somehow make sense of is to say we're doing the meat thing. Now, in my scenario, that means we don't have to kill predators if we want to produce meat with our wildlife. That is a very simple thought that we all need to understand. If we have cattle, goats, any other livestock, something like a lion will come into that area and it's going to start killing cattle and it's not going to end because normally for a lion, just to get one antelope is such an enormous effort that by the time it finished one kudu or a zebra or a wildebeest or whatever it caught, there is no way that that lion is going to even try to kill another animal. And at the same time, those other animals would be gone. Sometimes they will still stand in the distance and maybe actually be present to see what's going on. But there is no way that they would ever come near enough that line. They're extremely aware of what this line does. It's something that's in their instinct. Our domesticated animals don't have that instinct. I can promise you that. There would be no way we could take a cow, load it into a truck, drive it across God knows how many highways, and then have it queue at some slaughterhouse while the other cows are being killed in front of it, and it's still just going to walk in there. It's sad and it's terrible and they have lost that instinct completely. You try and do that with a wild animal, even if it was tame, there is no way it would go on a truck. There is no way it would not realize what's going on. So our wild animals are instinctively able to live with predators around. On top of that, what I mentioned earlier, the thing with too many animals eating where there's a water point, which means that overutilization, even if we don't have too many animals overall in the area, we might create a problem where the water point is situated because the animals are always going there drinking and then just eating and they will overutilize that part and eventually it, that overutilized part is like a ring that will grow bigger every year around that water point and we're destroying our area slowly and at the same time the animals will have to cover more and more distance every time to get to water and to get back to food and that obviously can't be a good thing. It'll mean they will get weaker and less to eat and so on. So having predators around can be very beneficial for those sort of niches in our ecosystem, like our little watering points, because obviously there is a high density of prey animals for all kinds of predators wherever there's a water point. 
or a river or a lake. Now, that means the predators will focus their hunting activity on that area. Now, that will most likely make many of these animals be extremely aware of predators. So no wildebeest is just going to walk around anywhere near this water point with its head down in the grass, eating and it's making noise. It can't hear anything because it's making so much noise in the grass itself and it's chewing. That's a very peaceful state of any herbivore when it's actually eating like that and they feel very safe. If they come near these water points in an area where there are predators, those wild animals would never think of eating anything and just come to drink and do that quickly and then go somewhere else. So the lion in that way can actually have an impact on the grazing and the grasses in many spots in Africa. So that's a good thing. At the same time, any predator is enormously efficient by finding out which of these animals is a little bit weak. They will find out the slightest weakness just by looking at these herds of wild animals from a distance. And that will be the one they single out and they try to go for because it's the easiest to catch. A lion is not a trophy hunter that cares about the biggest one or whatever. He will take the one that's the oldest, the sickest, whatever they can catch easy. And that may be the animal that has a funny horn growing and hurting it. That may be an animal that has hoofs growing up in a funny curve and it can't walk properly. It may be just an animal that has deformities in its bones. And this is how a lion or a leopard or a cheetah or a wild dog or any of these predators in their own certain preference of prey animals has a major impact on the overall health of our wild herbivores because they are taking out what should be going anyways. And they do that so much better than what we could ever do when we go hunting. So predators have a positive effect on wild herbivore population, but that being said, they have an extremely negative effect on our domestic herbivore population because the domestic herbivore population simply don't know what to do when a predator shows up and then things go bad and a lot of animals might die in one night because the instinct that the predator has is to kill and pretty much just to do that. And I'm sure that many of you may have a domestic cat at home or anything like that. And I would like you to think of the idea of giving your cat her favorite food, maybe, you know, the most expensive can of viscous and the cat absolutely loves that and you put it out there in a beautiful bowl and the cat's actually really hungry. And then just imagine, don't do it, but take a live mouse and put a live mouse somewhere near the bowl so the cat can now see it. And I can guarantee you that even the laziest, fattest cat will most likely completely abandon the food and go straight for that mouse. Whether it catches it or not is a different issue, but it's gonna try. So if you have a lion run into a cattle farm and maybe even get into the enclosure where the cattle are maybe kept or the goats or the sheep or whatever it is at night and the lion gets in there, that lion will try to, well, not try, he will most likely kill one animal, but the others are just standing right there and they're being freaked out and they're, they're, they're nervous and that lion's, all its instinct is telling him is to go and kill the next one. And that is how, unfortunately, we end up with the scenario with many dead animals and a very fat, lazy, and tired predator lying around and to an extent for the European listeners maybe or could be a similar issue in, in, in the American or Canadian countries if if we in Europe we have the problem with martens that uh, or foxes or anything like that or a raccoon that goes into a chicken stable and the similar thing happens and often that is because wherever that that marten or polecat or raccoon could fit into the stable it 
might not even be able to fit back out, even if it kills the first chicken and tries to drag it, but the chicken won't fit through the little hole where that thing came in, and then there's plenty other chickens, so it's just going to kill some more, and we come there, and then the predator is the, the problem, which for us, and maybe for that person's livelihood, absolutely is the case, but if we really understand the predator is actually ending up in a problem situation, and that has nothing to do with its nature. So these animals are not a killing machine that's just killing everything, they are just doing what they're designed to do. And those domestic animals that we have created are simply not designed to um, live next to or along with any of these wild animals. So with all these benefits being said about our predators for our ecosystem, obviously I would never want to kill any predator, even if I was looking at this for saying this is meat production and so on. To me, the predator has a benefit for my area and I love having them around. And with all that in mind, we still have this thing that we have the carrying capacity. We only have this area. And I would love to have much, much more area. But sadly, those areas are very expensive and they belong to other people. And some farm cattle and some farm other things. And so far, we're very happy that we have the 75 square kilometers here that is full of wildlife. And it's an absolutely beautiful, tiny little habitat for so many animals. But I have to look after it. And... Our animals are doing well, and despite our predators being around, our leopards are breeding here, our cheetahs are here, but they're not keeping up with what they should be doing, and our population of herbivores is increasing constantly, so we have to hunt. Obviously, if Serga is not out hunting for herself, which is hopefully going to happen soon, but at the moment I'm feeding her, which means once a month I have to go and shoot something that's about the size of a chemsbok to feed Serga for the month, and usually... Here for us, we take meat off that. That's our rations and Sirga's rations. Then we still have much more that needs to come off. And usually we try to do that on a regular basis to say we go out, we take off exactly what we think that should be taken out. We carefully try to select out animals that have funny horns, that have funny hooves, that might look just a little skinny, which could be a sign that they're getting old and the teeth are getting bad and so on. And then as ethically as possible, we hunt those animals and we sell them for meat at the local butchery in town. It's a huge effort to hunt and to cut up the meat and to bring it to town. And it's also a lot of paperwork involved that that meat can be sold there legally, that everything is done fine through the veterinary departments and so on. And it's costing quite a bit of money just to do that because for us to get the meat to town is a three-hour drive. And obviously it has to be hunted, which is also an effort. So I understand in some cases how people rather say, well, let's do the trophy hunting thing. We just bring in tourists. To me, it's an ethical factor, which is why I wouldn't want any trophy hunters around. I simply try to do it myself. And that's how we manage this area. And the proceeds from selling the meat, a lot of it goes back just into the operation of actually doing everything and paying the workers that are here living with us and helping us and so on and obviously just to the running of the whole area. But I can guarantee you at the moment it's nowhere near enough to actually run everything, which is why usually we rely on the photographic tourism and on things like our Patreon page and stuff like that on top of everything. All right, so, so far I hope that all of this made sense to everybody. And to be honest with you, I actually didn't have a lot of time lately for preparing this or anything. It's been absolutely mad crazy here. We've been so busy, so I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And even now my head's just sort of all over the place. So I hope that I somehow got this together in a sensible way so that everybody can understand why certain things have to be done. And 
at the end of this, I would just like to say, so what does this actually mean here on the day-to-day running? So one big thing is our water holes. We look after them very carefully. We make sure, number one, that they're not leaking, that the pipelines are not leaking anywhere, that the water holes themselves are clean and so on. So that's a bit of work. At the moment, we do most of that with the airplane just to check them. And if there's a problem, we can then go into that specific water point with the vehicle. It makes it all much, much quicker and actually cheaper, more economical and also more eco-friendly. The fences is a similar thing. We can check them from the air, but then also on a regular basis, we drive them. We look at little breaks. Is a wire broken somewhere? Sirgas fence specifically because it has electric wires and so on on it makes a lot more work, vegetation growing into the electricity and so on. And it is a 20 kilometer fence line. So it's a lot of work. Plus we have another 40 kilometers almost around the outside. So there's a lot of work on fences to be done. We monitor our vegetation regularly, which basically happens simply by walking actually a lot through the bush, looking at grasses, recording species and so on. We look closely at our rainfall and what what all of that does for us. About twice a year, we try to do game counts where we fly and sit down and do all of that. Then at least once a, once a month, we have to do the hunting and then selling meat and cutting meat into rations for Serga and to portions for us. All the meat we eat here in our area comes from our own area. And currently, we're actually busy setting up a small vegetable garden that we will also run here, not to sell vegetables just for us so that our operation becomes extremely sustainable, our own meat, our own vegetables, and Hopefully, in a couple of years' time, all of that will be run just of catching rainwater so that we could literally say, if the whole world shuts down around us, we could just continue going as we go along. The only problem would be we couldn't fly an airplane and drive cars anymore because we'd probably be run out of of petrol, but we could still have a comfortable life. So yeah, that's how the work is. It's a lot of walking around in the bush, actually checking the ranches. It's a lot of work on fences. Cutting fire breaks is a hell of a lot of work so that if we do have a fire, we know exactly our roads are clear. If we see a fire in that area, we could go fight that fire. And ironically, here in Africa, the easiest way to fight that fire is to just burn back against it. So if we have a fire coming and we are on a cleared road, we know that if we light the one side of the road towards the fire now on fire here, it's going to start relatively small. There's no big chance that it's going to jump across to the other side of the road but it will start burning back against the fire that's arriving close to us and that will make the fire die off far before it reaches the road. Obviously, being able to do that only works if we're actually aware of where the fire is and when it's happening. So we always have to be present. We have to be sort of awake and aware of these issues. If there's lightning storms at the right time of the year when things could be going wrong with fires, we need to be having a lookout even at night And we monitor the water holes. We have camera traps out. We check on all the predators. We regularly go along our roads and we look at all the tracks. We have horses that we're also starting to use now for a little bit of patrolling. So we take the horses out. It's a very eco-friendly and beautiful way to go through the bush. And it's a very nice way to look down at the tracks on the ground and simply see what's going on. So that's it's a very outdoorsy life pretty much all about working in the ranch but a lot of hard physical work like the working on the fire breaks working on the fences fixing all the water points and just keeping everything up to some sort of standard and half the time it just feels like you're just playing catch up with something that should have been done weeks ago and you just find time to do it now and the next three projects are already lining up and it just continues like that but it's a fantastic life it's never boring But the overall idea is important that one just doesn't go in and just start doing things, but that we have the right picture, that we know 
the capacity of this area that we keep in mind if we have a few years with very bad rain that the carrying capacity may be a little bit lower and we want to make sure specifically during that time that we don't damage our ecosystem so that we then try to maintain the population in the necessary manner. And overall, that is just the point to keep the population that is resident here and lives here in a healthy and good state. I think towards the end, now that we've spoken a little bit about our area here, the ultimate goal here, and whether that ever happens or not, I don't know. Specifically now, even our small business here, whether it's going to work the way it was intended or not with the pandemic going on and everything and tourism being completely crashed, we have no idea. But the idea is to have a small ecotourism guest camp here that we run. Usually we do sort of educational holidays, so not just a weekend, because the location where we are is simply so far away from everything that there's almost no point coming here for a couple of nights. So normally 14 days is the minimum that we accommodate people here. Most guests come for quite a bit longer, like up to a month or two months, three months even. And part of that same camp is supposed to be developed into a bit of a research base that's supposed to be run by professors that are friends of our scientists who have been doing conservation work and research in the ecosystem in the Kalahari for a very long time. We would like to use this research base and everything also as a bit of a community outreach program where we can bring in school classes to our facility, educate them about their own wildlife, about their areas and how to handle it and what can be done with it, show them what we can do here. The ultimate idea is to run this entire area of rainwater catchment, including our own vegetables, our own comfortable living, including a little pool and things like that. And all that can be achieved and showing that to the people here and saying, look, we can live with wildlife and actually off this wildlife. It gives us income, food, everything is here. We can use water from the roofs that we've created and we can run everything in a very beautiful way. We can grow our own vegetables and just show this to people. We want to start putting a few beehives up, educating people about the potential of farming with bees, creating some honey and all these kind of things. The rainwater that's supposed to run everything, the wildlife, the camp and the veggies, that is a major idea that, that we are hoping to achieve at some stage over the next few years, at least to get it started. And the biggest dream would be to say we can take this example and say, why don't we apply this and research it here properly? Look at exactly what does it produce? How are the animals utilizing it? We will find many mistakes and bits and pieces that we will learn as we go along. But that all of this can be applied to the vast, huge areas of the Kalahari where we lost so much wildlife simply because they've lost the access to water. And there would be fantastic ways to potentially put this throughout these areas to to give these animals that access and at the, at the same time make the move along these different rainwater catchment systems where water could be provided throughout the dry months to increase our herbivore population and with that to increase our lion, leopard and cheetah population and so on. So the overall idea is to create this fully sustainable ethical operation here on our 75 square kilometer area and use this to educate the surrounding communities, not just to teach them about wildlife and about a lot of this, because many of them have never even been in their wildlife areas. All they've seen is Kalahari. They grew up in it. But when they see wildlife, they're terrified of it. And mostly they've just grown up with goats, sheep and donkeys around them or some cows. So 
the education about their own wildlife and simply the awareness is a big thing and none of them has ever seen National Geographic either. So it's very important to bring all of this and we have the opportunity here to bring them right to this area. We have Serga, which makes a massive impression on everybody when they get to meet her and things like that. So there's so much that can be done. Also on a bigger global scale, maybe we can reach more people with our whole story and yeah, we can just have this life here. And whether it goes big and we can support anything in the big wildlife areas in Botswana and the parks, or whether it doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the idea is to have this area here to be run in a very proper, ethical, and sustainable way. And we are slowly getting closer and closer to this goal, but it's still going to take many years. So I th- hope that this has been a little bit of an educational journey for everybody and that everybody has a little bit of a better idea of what is involved in managing our small wildlife area here. And I can guarantee you there is actually so much more and I could probably talk for the next few hours just about grasses, but we don't want to bore anybody that much and kill the whole podcast. So next podcast, I would like to talk more about ethics since we're on this whole subject at the moment, but more specifically ethics in hunting and wildlife management. Also about predator hunting, trophy hunting, the whole thing. And more personally, how I feel about that, actually my personal opinions about all of this in this industry here in Africa. And everybody can take those facts and my opinion and then make make up their own mind about the whole story. I'm not trying to press anything onto anybody, but I think I've already gone into it a little bit. I'm more on the very ethical side, not really trophy hunting, but there are many points towards this and I'd just like to talk about this, elaborate everything and then hopefully everybody can get a clear idea about the whole picture and make up their own mind about what they believe what's right or wrong. So thanks for listening so far and hope we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Kalahari Diaries. Did you enjoy the podcast? Fantastic. You can help me tremendously by subscribing and rating it on your podcast app. Leave a review and tell friends and family about it if you feel like it. If you want to know more about this story, go ahead and check out the website on sergeythelioness.com or follow me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Valgrüner, that is at V-A-L-G-R-U-E-N-E-R, and at Modisa Wildlife Project, where I'm sharing photos and videos from the Kalahari on a regular basis. I'm Val, and you've been listening to the Kalahari Diaries. Mm-hmm.